It's time for Forward Nation Radio. Now here he is, the host of Forward Nation Radio, David Leventhal. Welcome to Forward Nation Radio. I'm David Leventhal. Thank you for joining us for today's show on daring to dream big and what we could make possible if we're only willing to try. Starting off with this theme, of course, it was the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 mission and man's first landing on the moon. Or if you are a a viewer of or listener of right-wing media and a Trump supporter, the 50th anniversary of the faking of the moon landing. Either way, an awfully impressive feat that has not been repeated by any other country, only by us a few times, and not since the 1970s, the early 1970s. A feat that may be repeated again in the not-too-distant future, perhaps even by this country again, although that's only coming from this administration, so it doesn't mean anything that they're saying they're going to do it. But other countries may also replicate the U.S. landing on the moon, or faking landing on the moon, Either way, because other countries have been stepping up their rocket programs as well as their film industries. But we are reminded on the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11 of the good old days, when we used to be able to unite unite as a country in a common purpose. When space exploration, scientific exploration, wasn't just a vanity project for billionaires with way too much money. In fact, a time when science was something that we could all support as a country. There wasn't all this disagreement in America on the very concept of science. And there was a belief maybe that we as a country should be engaging in it. And again, not just leaving it for wealthy billionaires who could figure out ways to profit off of it and to privatize science. A time 50 years ago, 50 plus years ago, when we announced the Apollo project, when we as a country could be inspired by a youthful president who embodied a nation with boundless possibilities, a nation that could think big and a leader that could think big, a nation and a leader who believed in shared sacrifice, a president of the United States who in his inauguration could say famously, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country and not immediately face impeachment. A president who on his inauguration did not, in fact, say, what's in it for me? Or maybe in the words of Donald Trump, uh, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for Donald Trump. A president back then who believed that service to his country was not just something for other people to engage in. A president who actually served his country with distinction in the military. A president, of course, who didn't suffer from debilitating bone spurs. This was a time when America as a country used to be able to do something, basically. Almost anything. Where our big projects went beyond building a fucking border wall. Now, our big projects, 
if we're inspired to think big in the on the anniversary of the moon landing, maybe they could bring cell phone service to the New York City subways. Maybe they can repair the potholes on the Long Island Expressway. Maybe we can get broadband service that matches that of Lithuania. This is now America that's been shown how all we can do is think small. But maybe I'm being unfair again. Because after all, just a week ago, who could have imagined that it would be possible for our government to reach a deal to increase our debt limit to keep our government running? Yes, the 2019 version of the moonshot, the Apollo program. We actually got a deal to keep our government running. And in fact, the House of Representatives just passed the bill, that is to advance that agreement between the president and congressional leaders. And we should talk about GOP consistency here. Republicans were consistent as they overwhelmingly opposed the budget agreement that would raise the debt limit to our, allow our government to continue to pay, pay its bills and keep operating because it also allowed for some increases in spending. So at least Republicans are consistent in opposing raising the deficit whenever that's done by spending money on someone other than themselves. Republicans consistently being against increasing the budget deficit unless it's to lower taxes on rich people or to give rich people more stuff. But maybe the most interesting part of the budget agreement, assuming it comes to fruition ultimately and, and gets through the Senate as well, is that it was announced by new press secretary, Stephanie Grisham. Yes, there is a new liar spokesperson for the president of the United States. Stephanie Grisham to replace Sarah the Huckster. And we on this show already miss Sarah the Huckster just because I like saying Sarah the Huckster. But new press secretary Stephanie Grisham is a worthy replacement of the Huckster. Having a long history throughout the Trump administration and before that of lying all the time. Yes, Stephanie Grisham, no relation to John Grisham, except for the fact that like that famous fiction writer, she's made a career out of fiction. We look forward to the latest lies for the next few years from Stephanie Grisham, Donald Trump's new press spokesperson and communications director. Anyway, speaking of what's possible with the government, just before we went to record this show, four automobile companies agreed to California emissions rules. In a sense, collectively raising their middle fingers at the President of the United States, who felt that some basic rules regarding auto fuel efficiency were unattainable in an America that hasn't gone to the moon for 50 years, almost 50 years. But it turns out the state of California shows us the way. Bear in mind that this story of four oil companies agreeing to, to fuel, uh, increase fuel standards, fuel requirements, is not about corporate social responsibility. New York Times has an op-ed or an editorial today on the subject, which mostly gets it right. On the other hand, it does pay lip service to the concept of corporate social responsibility. 
And let's be clear, this is not about corporate social responsibility. Anybody who takes that lesson out of this is getting a dangerously wrong lesson from this. You want to be reminded of why this is not about corporate social responsibility? One of the four companies that has agreed to abide by the California uh, fuel requirements is Volkswagen. Yes, Volkswagen. The same company that for years was programming its cars' computers to cheat and lie on emissions tests so that they could pollute the planet at a much greater level than they were announcing they were polluting. This is not about corporate social responsibility. What this is about is what happens when you have government that actually chooses to to protect its people, to do the right thing to protect the planet. This is about California, and thank God for liberal states. And thank God that California has such a huge part of our auto market that its rules can actually, in many respects, replace the lack of national rules. That's what this is about. This is about what would happen if we had a federal government that actually gave a shit about America, about promoting the interests of human beings and the planet rather than making themselves and their friends richer. This happens, of course, in the wake, just in the last week, of Trump's EPA facilitating the dissemination of chemicals that will harm and kill children, choosing not to regulate them. But there's been more this week that shows the possibility of dreaming big with respect to governance, starting out in a not very good way. Just this week, Boris Johnson became the Prime Minister designee of Great Britain. Boris Johnson, who basically is Trump light. Boris Johnson, who is an international fucking jackass, who is a joke, who peddled Brexit under false, false pretenses. Sound familiar here? And who very famously, you might recall, we reported on this two years ago right after the vote in favor of Brexit went through, completely went back on his core promises regarding Brexit. We never said any of that. Only, of course, they had. A new prime minister of Great Britain who, like the president of the United States, is unaware that videotape has been developed. Boris Johnson, complete joke, is a reminder of what can happen with governments on the negative side. A reminder that Donald Trump is not alone in in presenting an existential threat to civilization. He's now got help from his little mini-me as Prime Minister of Great Britain, as well as others we've mentioned on the show over the last many months. But on a more positive note about showing what's possible with respect to governance, we go to Puerto Rico. Not a statement that's uttered very often. Where just a few days ago, Ricardo Rossello, the governor of Puerto Rico, was finally forced to give in to massive, massive grassroots protests and resign his position. Ricardo Rossello, a privileged, corrupt, self-dealing, dishonest, crass, belittling, A man who belittles people in his country, people he disagrees with. I'm going to 
wait for a moment while you let the obvious comparison sink in. In fact, let's now go and make the obvious comparison. Donald Trump is tweeting about how awful this guy is, but let's remind ourselves that up until recently, this is the one guy in Puerto Rico that Donald Trump has actually liked, repeatedly praising him, apparently because they're all part of the same club, the privileged, corrupt, self-dealing, dishonest, crass, and belittling club, the lowlife club. Well, Donald Trump has turned on his good buddy. Now that things have gotten a little hot for him, God, it almost makes you think that Rosello is part of the Trump cabinet or anybody else who's ever been in Donald Trump's life. Yes, he's been on the receiving end of the famous Trump loyalty. Kind of like Jeffrey Epstein in that respect. And again, everybody else in Trump's life. Okay, anyway, I know there's been a couple stories over the week that you've probably wanted me to get to, even though um, you've probably heard about them everywhere else. And the big story of the week that everyone was following, which turned out, of course, to be the huge non-story of the week, was special counsel Robert Mueller finally testifying to Congress. And boy, oh boy, oh boy, this did not disappoint. Yeah, this totally disappointed, actually. This did not disappoint anybody who thought that this was going to be a big nothing. Because for the most part, it really was a big nothing. It is a reminder, though, of several things that clearly aren't big nothings. And there were some things in this testimony that weren't big nothings and that are lost in all the analysis that I basically heard talking about this. First of all, as I've mentioned on this show a whole bunch of times, how wrong it is. I understand that this man's integrity is unassailable. His lack of partisanship or whatever, his not wanting to put his finger on the scale is famous. But you know what? It once again was shown to be the wrong remedy for the wrong time. I, you've probably seen all the jokes that people are coming out with about Mueller basically sitting there for what turned out to be close to seven hours, I think, and not answering anything for the most part. But it's not commendable that he didn't answer the questions, as I've argued on this show. This is an existential crisis for this country and this country's constitution. And you look around, I know I've been reading that Robert Mueller doesn't have a lot of respect for the partisanship in Congress. Well, maybe he shouldn't. If he's aware, he looks at Congress and he understands what's going on there. So this was simply not the time for you to punt. This was not the time for you to abdicate responsibility. It was another reminder that the man needed to be there saying at some point, yes, giving the Democrats the soundbite they were looking for. Are you kidding me? Did you not read my freaking report? Of course he needs to be impeached. Read the report. Do I have to spell it out for you? The answer, of course, is yes. You had to spell it out for us. And you continued to refuse to do that. The man may have a lot of integrity, but he is dead wrong again and not coming out and making more sense of his investigation and what they have found. I thought it was comical and not sufficiently remarked upon 
or it was noteworthy, maybe not comical, but not sufficiently remarked upon, that for the entire length of the two hearings, Democrats were basically trying to get him to finally say something that we all know to be true, that the report clearly indicates is true. Whereas for the entire seven hours, the Republican congresspeople were constantly trying to get him to say things that were not true. Or that's a little unfair because they didn't expect that they were going to get him to say anything that was untrue, but they were there peddling a false narrative. And when we talk about what came of this hearing, let's not forget the fact that once again, one political party was shown to have an interest in investigating a a hostile foreign power's interference in a U.S. election and a president's welcoming of that power, of that effort. And a political party that had absolutely no interest in doing that and only had an interest in attacking the institutions of accountability in the United States of America. And that cannot be said often enough. I understand we do false equivalences in this country, but there was no equivalency between the way the Democrats were approaching that hearing and the way the Republicans were. In fact, at one point, Mueller did say something that I think was actually pretty informative. He did get his backup, in fact, when he had to keep addressing the Republican claims that his investigation was a witch hunt and his investigation was partisan and not credible. You could understand why he could get upset about that, not upset to really do anything about it, but at least upset enough to get his back up. And at one point, I thought it was, it was very important when he was addressing the GOP implicit or explicit claims that many of the people on his team were Democrats, bearing in mind, of course, as you've all heard, that Mr. Mueller himself is a lifelong Republican, the guy who was in charge of the investigation. But addressing the GOP claims that this was a Democratic witch hunt and his team was too many Democrats, he pointed out that when he puts together his team, he, among other things, looks for people with integrity. And what was clear in that hearing is you might as well just say, when I look for people with integrity, there aren't a lot of Republicans to choose from. And in this room, there's nobody to choose from. Well, actually, there probably was one. The guy at the border. Uh, For instance, we have, while this was going on, we had the spectacle of Republican Senator Tim Scott who has been disparaging the Mueller report and was asked, have you read the Mueller report? A United States senator was asked if he had read a report by an independent counsel about two years in the making on a hostile foreign power's efforts to influence and to pervert U.S. democracy and its role in electing a president of the United States. And despite his almost or more than $200,000 a year public salary, Republican Senator Tim Scott's response was, what's the point of reading the report? Why would I? Clearly, my conclusion was dictated to me by my political party. Why would I have to read the report? Why would facts matter? I'm a Republican. Did you not notice that? What was also interesting 
as, as we read about what happened in the testimony, is the extent to which GOP spin has, as always, had a huge impact on the way everybody looks at what actually happened. Donald Trump was tweeting victory before it even started. I'm sure he had the tweets already written. As was every other Republican congressman, senator, or report, so-called journalist on Fox News, who had already prepared their see, Robert Mueller shows that Donald Trump and the Republicans were right along and the Democrats were bad. Reality having absolutely nothing to do with the spin that they were going to make sure the post-hearing had. What the message was going to be to America, and that is in fact the message that apparently a vast portion of this country has gotten. Article after article has been written about, well, there goes the impeachment, despite the fact that that had nothing to do with what actually transpired. Yes, Mueller was not forthcoming on things he should have been forthcoming about. But let's remember what this hearing either explicitly pointed out or at least reminded us of. And the first one is that the President of the United States would be facing multiple criminal indictments if he were not the President of the United States. Or, in the words of Republicans, complete exoneration. It's also a reminder that Russia did and continues to represent one of the gravest threats to U.S. democracy, not actually in the Republican Party. That Russia interfered with a U.S. election, almost certainly being one of the factors that led to certainly being one of the factors that led and almost certainly being a but-for cause of Donald Trump's being elected president. If it were not for Russia, Donald Trump would probably not be the president. Mueller's testimony did remind us, as it explicitly stated, that the president and his entourage and his family cooperated with this Russian effort. Cooperated with the effort of a hostile foreign power to steal a U.S. election. Yes, Trump and his minions could not cooperate with the special counsel investigating such crimes, but he could cooperate with the crimes themselves. Ooh, what does that sound like? There's a word for that. I just can't think right now. It's, it's just off the tip of my tongue. Um, anyway, the president, we are reminded, not only is doing nothing about the investigation, he's not doing anything to stop it in 2020. And why would he? Since he figures to benefit from it. Donald Trump was just joking about election interference with Vladimir Putin, not seeking to arrest him, not putting out an international arrest warrant, joking with him about stealing the next U.S. election, too. In fact, when Mueller was specifically asked, is, US, is, is a U.S. presidential candidate reaching out for assistance from hostile foreign powers to steal U.S. elections? Is that going to become the new normal? Mueller did give a response that should be a sound bite on every TV and news show. I hope this is not the new normal. But I fear it is. It is certainly the new normal in the Republican Party. 
And it is another thing. Colluding. Oh, that was the word. Colluding. Conspiring. With hostile foreign powers. To steal our elections and take them away from American voters. Trump 2020. You fucking morons. It is a reminder that Donald Trump has an entire political party at his back as he continues to undermine U.S. democracy, the U.S. Constitution, and U.S. elections. There's a nice thought. Anyway, before we leave, one other big story that also not on the, on the happy front. Uh, a Supreme Court justice who I have lauded on this show several times and done so in class for many years. Justice John Paul Stevens died this week at age 99. Justice Stevens, a Republican appointee under Gerald Ford, is a reminder of what is possible, what we could dream of when it comes to our judges, to those whose job it is to interpret our laws and to apply them in ways that benefit the people of this country and the world. Justice Stevens, appointed by a Republican, showed the possibility when a Republican is capable of evolving, let alone believing in evolution. Because Stevens did evolve on the court. He is a reminder of what happens if you have a justice who stands for decency, and concern for the impact that his decisions will have on ordinary people's lives. For that matter, what it means to have a Republican who gives a shit about people's lives. He represented honesty and integrity and what it was like when the Republican Party had some of those things. A reminder of the possibility, a time when you didn't have to lie to get on the United States Supreme Court. In fact, a man who got bipartisan approval when he was nominated to the United States Supreme Court. A time when you actually could, actually could be accepted by both political parties. As Stevens was confirmed to the United States Supreme Court unanimously. As a reminder of why he is missed on the United States Supreme Court, and why he is missed in his commentary, because he stepped down from the Supreme Court almost a decade ago, several years ago, but he has been active in writing since then, including for the New York Review of Books, which I have cited on this show many times. I would like to talk about some of his decisions and how they matter today, or should matter, when it comes to issues of today. Let's start with Stevens' dissent. In the Bush v. Gore case, where the United States Supreme Court decided a presidential election. Well, five conservative justices of the United States Supreme Court. Reminding us what is possible when you have a five justices on the United States Supreme Court with not an ounce of integrity. Here is Stevens' dissent in that case. The court's action can only lend credence to the most cynical appraisal of the work of judges throughout the land. He went on, it is confidence in the men and women who administer the judicial system that is the true backbone of the rule of law. Time will one day heal the wound to that confidence that will be inflicted by today's decision. One thing, however, is certain. 
Although we may never know with complete certainty the identity of the winner of this year's presidential election, the identity of the loser is perfectly clear. It is the nation's confidence in the judge as an impartial guardian of the rule of law. He's saying that about his fellow Republican justices. Something that I have commented on this show many, many times. I wonder that people still talk about the United States Supreme Court losing its credibility and the public's faith. And I ask, for two decades now, how could this United States Supreme Court have any respect from the American public? Here is Stevens' dissent in the Citizens United case that gave over our elections to big money and corporations. The basic premise underlying the court's ruling is its iteration and constant reiteration of the proposition that the First Amendment bars regulatory distinctions based on a speaker's identity, including its identity as a corporation. While that glittering generality has rhetorical appeal, it is not a correct statement of the law. I say that as a reminder that you should go back and look at our show from a long time ago on reasoning fallacies. Because glittering generalities is one of the ones I talk about. And I use this in my class and on my show as an example of that. But Stevens went on in his dissent in the Citizens United case, which he described as, quote, a disaster for our election law. He thought the majority got the First Amendment wrong by noting the Constitution does in fact permit numerous restrictions on speech for the purpose of preventing the voices of a few from drowning out the many. The many. Close quote. Reminding us of the possibility of a Supreme Court, a Constitution, a United States government that gives a shit about preventing the voices of the few from drowning out the voices of the many. Someone on the United States Supreme Court who actually believes in the so-called marketplace of ideas that is the backbone of our First Amendment jurisprudence. But in fact, we no longer have because now we have propaganda by the wealthy that has squeezed out any arguments from all but a few lonely college professors who are pretty much the only ones who get to speak to an audience that might listen to them without a whole lot of money. It was also a reminder, by the way, Stevens also reminded us in his dissent in Citizens United of what true conservatism really was. Because true conservatism is against supposedly judicial activism. No surprise, we've learned now that, now that conservatives own our courts, that they had no honest and principled objection to judicial activism. They just had a, a, an unprincipled objection to when it wasn't theirs. And in fact, in the Citizens United case, Stevens reminded us this was a minor case dealing with a minor issue in campaign finance reform or campaign finance law until the conservatives of the United States Supreme Court went to litigants and said, no, we want you to go back and argue this because we want an opportunity to basically throw out campaign finance restrictions. The exact antithesis of what true conservatism is supposed to be. One of my favorite Stevens' dissents came in an important affirmative action case in the 1990s, case Adirond v. Pena, 
in which, again, a 5-4 to ultra-conservative majority of the United States Supreme Court managed to greatly limit affirmative action and its use across America. One of the decisions written in that case, a concurring opinion, was written by Justice Clarence Thomas. Justice Clarence Thomas is the most obvious beneficiary of affirmative action preferences in the history of the world. A man who was on the Supreme Court strictly because of affirmative action. Well, affirmative action with his conservative, ultra-conservative views. But who nonetheless manages to be the most outspoken and ardent opponent of affirmative action in America. Yes, that's right. The guy who exists because of affirmative action really, really, really hates affirmative action. Well, he wrote a concurring opinion in the Adirond case that didn't go far enough in destroying affirmative action. Thomas felt the need to point out that affirmative action efforts to try to level the playing field and allow minorities such as blacks to compete on a level playing field Thomas argued was no different than Jim Crow laws, lynching, and efforts blatant discrimination to keep black men down as has existed for hundreds of years in this country. He made a false equivalency between laws designed to keep black people down and laws designed to level the playing field. Well, Justice Stevens, again Republican, wrote a dissent in that case. And let me read from his dissent. Thomas is an ass. Okay, that's not actually a quote. That's me paraphrasing. Stevens wrote a dissent in that case, which pretty much was, my colleague, Justice Thomas, is an ass. Anyone who could make that argument, I forget the exact words he used, so I'm just going to finish it the same way, is an ass. Finally relevant to one of the big issues of today and to the United States Supreme Court which just ruled that it will do absolutely nothing to preserve the integrity of U.S. elections, not just when it comes to campaign funding, but when it comes to gerrymandering, the drawing of electoral boundaries to make sure that voters actually have no role in U.S. elections. Stevens heard his first case about gerrymandering in 1972. In his second year as a circuit judge, before he even made it to the United States Supreme Court, Stevens pointed out that he wanted to apply the same standard for striking down electoral districts gerrymandered on the basis of politics as the Voting Voting Rights Act calls for when districts are gerrymandered on the basis of race. Well, that is until the Republicans finally succeed in getting rid of what's left of the Voting Rights Act. In other words, over four decades ago, Stevens recognized the impact on the disempowered that gerrymandering figured to have, something that his conservative colleagues have refused to learn 40-something years later. So as I pointed out before, Stevens evolved while he was on the United States Supreme Court, and he became a liberal lion, despite not having a liberal background and being appointed by a Republican president. This was a time when Supreme Court justices were capable of evolving and Republicans, as I pointed out. Stevens says, by the way, that he did not become more liberal in his decades on the court. That, in fact, he just appeared more liberal because the court became so conservative around him. And while I believe that the record shows that Stevens did, in fact, become more liberal in very important ways, 
ultimately, he is absolutely right about what happened to the court. At one point years ago, he pointed out that for the entirety of his time in the United States Supreme Court and since, with one exception, now there's at least a couple of exceptions, every justice who was replaced was replaced by a justice who was more conservative. Every single one. So while Stevens did move somewhat to the left, he didn't have to to become the liberal icon of the United States Supreme Court. As Emily Bazelon, legal expert, wrote in the New York Times this week, in an article worth, worth reading, she points out that Justice Stevens was embraced by both Republican and Democratic presidents. And that the fact that he was points out the distance to the right the Republican Party has traveled from Gerald Ford to Donald Trump. Far more than whatever shift Stevens underwent in his own opinions in the opposite direction. Bazelon points out that he was the last of a group of Republican appointees who breathed compassion into the law and put the impact of their decisions on real people above arid theories. Stevens, again, capable of learning while on the bench, something that we do not have, at least among the conservative justices right now. And a reminder as we talk about this, as we talk about the callousness that's come in. The Supreme Court, of course, was always political, but it wasn't callous political like this. It's not just that the Supreme Court has become more political, it's that it has moved more to the right. And again, a reminder, as I like to do as often as I can, the conservative, ultra-conservative majority that seems baked into the United States Supreme Court has been put there by a political party that has lost six out of the last seven presidential elections. A political party that clearly does not represent the people of this country. And yet, they continue to further tighten their control of the United States Supreme Court and the courts. Boy, does Stevens represent what could happen if we demanded more of our courts and we asked more of our judges and we put more competent and decent human beings into judgeships. Instead, now the United States Supreme Court is used as a regressive tool. Chance not to move us forward, but just to move us backwards. And how hard the Republicans fight, we're reminded to make sure that it is never representative of the American people. We're reminded of this to some extent this week. I read some study that someone had done about emergency United States Supreme Court applications. Republicans have been relying on the Trump era more and more on the courts to do their bidding, so much for opposing judicial activism. And someone did a study that showed that under Boy George, Bush Jr., six times did Boy George in eight years ask for an emergency United States Supreme Court decision. It happened four times during the eight Obama years. It has happened 28 times already in just two plus years of the Trump administration. 28 requests emergency applications to the United States Supreme Court so that they could countermand any will of the people or interest of the people of this country. They don't win all of these emergency applications, but they win a lot of them. And it doesn't really even matter when they lose. They still have a foil that they then get to run against. Oh, that evil Justice Roberts, 
Remember that one time he didn't give us what we wanted? And then the false equivalence kicks in. And they're all the same on both sides. But anyway, they don't have to worry too much about having a foil for when they lose because generally they can count on winning in this United States Supreme Court. That's why they have chosen justices carefully whose political beliefs they are certain of and they know they will advance while on the court. And we were reminded of that just the other day when a five to four ultra conservative majority of the United States Supreme Court that has no business being there decided to allow Donald Trump to divert $2.5 billion in Pentagon funding to build his fucking wall. You didn't think we were going to end on a high note, did you? Anyway, that's our show for the week. So thanks for joining us. Have a good week. Keep up the good fight. You've been listening to Forward Nation Radio with David Leventhal. 